great Scott. Are you a sports fan who loves to have a good laugh? Oh, yeah. Then you're in the right place. I'm going to make him an offer again. Life moves pretty fast. Welcome to the Man Cave Chronicles. Growing up in America is the best place to grow up in the world. It's the best place. It is the best place to grow up as a kid in America. You can do anything you want as a kid in America. You can do any. You can do any. You can. You can play Nintendo. That's all I did. But you can do. You can do anything. Guys, like to this day in Lebanon, we don't have electricity 24 hours a day. So imagine little Nimmer playing Nintendo at 10 years old in Lebanon. I'm playing Super Mario Brothers, and it's hard. Like I go down the pipe. Go up the pipe. I'm like, yeah. I'm getting the thing. There's the stairs. I run up the stairs. I jump. I'm about to get to the flag. I'm going to win. I'm about to... Electricity cuts. And you're just like... You get... You see, a lot of people blow up in the Middle East because we're frustrated. And this is why. My dad's never satisfied. If you have a Lebanese dad, they're never satisfied. When I told my dad I wanted to be a stand-up comic, I'm sure you can understand. He wasn't exactly enthused. At the suggestion, I'm like, Dad, I'm going to be a stand-up comic. Oh, you're going to be a clown. I was like, no, Dad, Dad I'm going to be a stand-up comic. Oh, you're going to stand up and be a clown. Great. Great. I'm like, no, Dad. He's like, no, really. He's going to call my mom. Here, here, come, come say hi to your son, the clown. Come. She's like, he's your son, too. I, I don't have a son. You don't understand the dedication. For years, he bought a horn. Every time I would come into the house, every single time. Everybody! Everybody! The clown is here. Open the door for his big shoe. Everybody! Until last year, I made it on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. He was like, this is my son, the comedian. I always said, follow your dreams. But he can't pronounce it right. He's like, my son was on the cover of Throwing Stones. I'm like... Dad, that's the ISIS publication. That's a different magazine father. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I have a stand-up comedian. N- N- How do you pronounce your name? Nimmer, like Simmer. That's it. Yeah, Nimmer. How's it going? I'm good, man. How are you? Good, good. So uh, let's tell, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm, uh, my name's Nimmer. It means tiger in Arabic. Uh, I'm Lebanese originally, but I'm also American, as I'm sure you could tell from the accent. I grew up in San Diego, and when I was about 11 years old, I went back to Beirut, Lebanon, and uh, lived there till I was about 31. And during that time, uh, when I was about 21, 22, started actually younger even, I started doing uh, stand-up comedy in the Middle East, and I started the entire industry from scratch, and slowly yet surely built it across the entire region before I uh, became a, a household name across the region there, and then came to the U.S. about three years ago, expanded rather to the US. I live now in Los Angeles and I travel around the world trying to uh, do more comedy that brings people together and uh, in a non-cliche ways, uh, cliche way actually changes the world. So that that's a very quick roundup of what I'm up to. How did you, uh, how was it growing up in Beirut? <laughs> Beirut was um, amazing. That's the only way I can describe it. It was uh, incredible. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world is Lebanon. Beirut is obviously the capital. It, it's 
it's a stunningly beautiful country. Uh, you yourself, you were telling me you're, you're from Greece. We're neighbors. Uh, both countries very similar in their geography. Uh, Lebanon is the only country in the Middle East that's a Mediterranean country, is an Arab country. Um, so it's very much like, uh, you know, Greece and, you know, it's all on the coast and then there you have your mountains and everything. So geographically, it's beautiful. The people are absolutely beautiful. Everything about it was incredible. Of course, there was war and there was hardship, but, um, that came in, in spurs after it wasn't, it was never like, uh, like, a, the way the situation was. So I would describe it as an incredible time because I, I, I got a huge dose of the real world up front and uh, something very unique that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Yeah. How is the comedy world in uh, Lebanon? Now it's amazing. Uh, and I'll take credit for that. But uh, before when I was starting out, it was terrible. I mean, everybody loves comedy. You know, the Middle East, everybody has an incredible sense of humor. They love to tell jokes. And really, because there's so much darkness over in that region, uh, jokes are, are essential more than they are just, you know, stuff that we want to do. Um, but there was no stand-up comedy scene. But, I mean, there was a thriving com sketch comedy, uh, theatrical comedy kind of thing going on, and it's been going on for generations there. So right now it's just like, you know, we've honed this new form of comedy, stand-up, and it's uh, it's really incredible. I mean, it's very, very popular, not just in Lebanon, but really across the entire Middle East, all the way up to Saudi Arabia. So yeah. it's, it's fantastic. Yes. Are you... Um like I said, you know, like I, I said to you, like I'm from Greece, you know, my parents are like that mm -hmm. old, old school European. <laughs> Were your parents like that too? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad mainly. My mom, not so much, but my dad, very old school uh, parent. I was talking to a friend the other day and I was like, you know, it's like um, any 70s sitcom dad who's very strict. And yeah. even though they're very strict, you're supposed to be lucky because they're not as strict as their dad was to them. That's yeah. That's supposed to be. That's that's how they make you feel better when you say dad's like terrible. Yeah. Then they tell you, well, you know, his dad was way worse as if that's supposed to make you feel <laughs> feel better. But, um, yeah, he was very strict, very old school, but at the same time, very awesome, very, very good, present father. He was he was there, you know, uh, in, in an old school way, you know, where people take responsibility and, and raise their children right and take pride and feel shame and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, I, I would imagine you would have experienced the same if they were Greek. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a, pretty much the same thing. You know, my father was, you know, he worked, you know, crazy hours. Yeah. We barely saw him until the weekends, you know, and it, he, he was all about, you got to come home, you got to do your homework, then you can play. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it wasn't, yep, yep. It wasn't, you know, it was like school was the Very, number one thing. Yep. Very simple. Go to school, do your thing. And then it's like, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be this. Great. Do whatever you want. First, get a degree. And then when you're done with getting the degree, you get a job. And afterwards, you can follow your dreams. So that, that was always how it was. How did it go when you told your uh, parents you wanted to be a comic? Not good. Yeah. <laughs> not good at all. No, no, not good at all. I mean, they, they were totally against it. But they weren't against it to like, we're never going to talk to you again. They were against it like you're making the biggest mistake of your life and constantly trying to uh, warn me about you know how how much this could derail everything and where I was and I'm wasting time and it's a real tough world out there and you can't just joke your way through it and you know it, 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 I was the first in the entire region so I, I don't blame them yeah. at all and um, thankfully they were wrong and uh, they're they're the, the the reason we know they're great parents is they're going to be the first to say we're so happy we're wrong yeah you know that's a good thing. Yeah, but they weren't they weren't like I mean, anybody who's listening who has parents 
who aren't from Los Angeles would <laughs> would understand. Yeah. Anytime you tell your parents, you know, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be whatever, they're not going to be like, yeah, follow your dreams. They're going to be like, you're stupid. You got to be either an engineer or a doctor or something. You know, the, yeah. those overbearing parents who want their kid to be number one in class and want their kid to to be one of these things that's guaranteed success. Because, you know, parents don't want, they don't want their kids to risk anything. They don't want their kids to go through hardship. They want their kids to do good. And they've done bad, the parents, and they and they know what works. They know without a doubt that if you graduate from the, the top of your class and you're in, you're a doctor or you're an engineer, you're set. And uh, I don't think it's such a bad thing that parents drop support in favor of a, a guaranteed uh for them, what they think will bring you happiness. Yeah, you know, it's it's not selfish in my opinion. No, I, I totally agree. My father's one of those guys where he probably could have been a teacher if he stayed in Greece, but you know, my grandfather brought him here. My father didn't mm-hmm. know the language that well, so he worked at a factory this whole life. There you go. You know? And and does he complain? No. Yeah, no. I mean that that's how they're so much better than our generation because we complain about how we've given up our dreams. Yeah, they don't. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they don't. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I I, I don't like vilifying anybody. I, I'm usually very um, hesitant to make a villain out of anyone because I always try to understand the motivations. And I, I don't see any wrong. I don't see any evil. Therefore, I don't see any wrong in how our parents did it. What I see is wrong is if, if somebody caved in when they could could have not caved in. You know, and a lot of people be like, if it wasn't for my parents, I'll be like, well, if you couldn't overcome your parents, you definitely couldn't have overcome the uh, reality of the industry you wanted to get in too. So, so I, I don't, I, I think parents who, you know, and I know a lot of people who didn't have parents actively in their lives and they would be the first to tell you, man, you should just thank God there was somebody who gave a shit yeah. that tried to stop you, you know? Uh, yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. So, um. Who did you look up to in comedy? Like, who were your some of your influences out there? Well, you know, my first, first, the most important influence was Dana Carvey because Dana Carvey was the the first comic I ever memorized a set for. That was like when I was five or four, maybe. I, I don't even remember. But I memorized a set for him and I'd go around repeating it and telling everybody when I grow up, I'm going to be a comic like Dana Carvey. And I and do the set. It was a set about uh, George Bush Sr. throwing up on the Japanese president, on the Chinese president, rather. Or Japanese, I can't remember. It's an old set of his. Um, but since then, you know, I, I when I went back to Beirut, I didn't have easy access to stand-up. And anything that would come my way, I'd, I'd eat it. And I found my mom's old cassette tape stash from when she was a kid. And her her brothers and her father and, and her mother and, and what she had collected, she they used to record on cassette, uh, you know, Steve Martin doing stand-up and uh, Woody Allen doing stand-up and uh, Lenny Bruce and... And, and Richard Pryor, and basically I used to listen to these tapes more often than not, not knowing who I'm listening to. Because, yeah. you know, it was just it was just the set or the show. And they were huge influences on my life. And I, I discovered years later, oh, that was, you know, Woody Allen doing stand-up. When you're 12, you, you don't know who the hell Woody Allen is or anyone. So um, they, those were, that cassette tape stash, that those early Dana Carvey tapes um, – uh, Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson. I mean, these were all big influences yeah. uh, in in my life, especially being out isolated in the Middle East. It, I, I didn't have access to um, the new stuff or what was what was hot. I did get 
early access in my career early on before I became anywhere on a stage that was, I listened to a lot of Bill Hicks and I thought he was incredible. Um, and it wasn't until like early two thousands when the internet became, you know, where you could illegally download comedy central specials. And that's what I would do. I would download entire seasons of them. And that's where I met, you know, Louis black. I had never heard of him, saw his special blew me away or, or Greg Giraldo, uh, or, you know, so many different amazing talents, uh, you know, of course, Dave Chappelle, I had heard about the Chappelle show when I fr- then I was like, oh, he's a stand up too. checked it out. But it was all after the fact. I think the early influences were more those, you know, those cassette tapes, those books, the Dana Carvey thing. That was really what shaped the comedy side of, of my life. And then Rage Against the Machine shaped the activism side of my career as well. So those were big influences on my life. When you said tapes, uh, it reminded me of like when my fa- when I was younger, my father would take us to the library. You know, we could rent movies and books and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And we'd take, mm-hmm. I would pick out the Robin Williams stand up and cassette to play nice. on, to play on my Walkman. That is amazing. Yeah. Isn't that amazing though? I know. I know. It's like, and I, what's amazing about cassettes, and um, I'm not that old. I don't want people to think I'm bashing on digital. I love digital, but I'm saying what's amazing about it is it kind of forced you. To listen to the whole thing because you couldn't be bothered to forward and rewind, you know, because it took time. You couldn't just click past it. So you'd end up really when it came to music or even comedy, you'd end up listening to bits which you really didn't like. Right. And then the next time you had to listen to it again to get to the part you did like and you end up actually appreciating the part you didn't like. And it ends up becoming your favorite part as opposed to the other part as you grow within this recording you're listening to was it that happened a lot with music and it even happened with comedy albums but in music you'd be listening oh i hate this track but you're not going to skip past it so you listen to it you just because you have to walk over and press the forward button so whatever it ends up becoming your favorite track you know and it's the same with comedy everything artistically today i think that's a bit we've we've taken away from the artist the ability to stretch a bit um because we want instant gratification if we don't get it we're going to skip past it and 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 we're gonna we're that's a very negative thing um that we're we're having right now and now people don't even know the man cave chronicles on twitter at the mcc podcast we'll be right back hey guys brian padone here founder of quiet punch when i'm not listening to the man cave chronicles you can catch me filming one of my live workouts on quietpunch.com check it out today that's quietpunch.com Steven here, co-owner of the BS Podcast Network. I really hope that you're enjoying this podcast that you're listening to. It is on the BS Podcast Network. Speaking of the BS Podcast Network, why don't you head on over to patreon.com slash BS Podcast Network and donate something. You donate a dollar, you can get our bonus episodes. You donate three dollars, you can get some stickers. Uh, five, 10, 15, we have a whole bunch of really cool things that can go straight to you, straight to your doorstep if you give us a little bit of that sweet cash. And this money, it's not going to my pocket. It's not going to anybody's pocket. It's going right back to this podcast and other podcasts just like it on this network. Uh, when we reach a certain amount of money, I believe it's $200, we're going to start helping our podcast fund their fees so they don't have to put any money out of their pockets either. So if everybody out there who's listening to this just, just donates $1, maybe a little bit more, that means these shows can keep on going with no threat of putting anyone in the poorhouse, which nobody wants, ever. So please go to patreon.com slash BS Podcast Network and throw down just a few dollars. Thank you and enjoy this show. Hey, 
and it seems like a, now it's a lot easier for you know anybody could just make you know like a a comedy special and put it on a iTunes oh, yeah. or oh yeah whatever. yeah yeah and self promote and then self-promote you're good it. yeah back then you know you got, it... back then it would take like a year to record a tape oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't mean anything anymore. I mean, take a look today. If somebody gets up on any late night show, Conan, Fallon, Kimmel, just the fact that there's so many to name. But I mean, take a let's say any of them. It doesn't do anything. I mean, take a look at all these comics every every other week. You got somebody up who's new and they're obscure. Back in the day, you get getting up on that platform, first of all, which was such a smaller platform. You only had like, what, two tonight shows. Yeah, Um, it would make your career make or break. Your career. I mean, if, if Johnny Carson called you over, it's done. You know, yeah. it's you're, you're a household name. Yeah. And right now you got to get on the, the the late shows. You got to put out a special. You got to have a comedy album. You got to work hard. You got to network. You got to have a social networking presence. You got to be on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat. You got to post your pictures to Instagram, then post your stories to Instagram, as well as your stories on Snapchat. Now on Facebook. Now it's on WhatsApp. So it's like you got to be all the, the, the climb it's a job. has become. It's, a, it's job. a job in and of itself. It is. Yep. It really is. But, you know, that's it. every generation has its set of uh, hurdles to overcome, and ours are the digital ones. Yeah. And then, and then you, you know, you have to be good because you have to respond back to fans, too, because they're the ones that are going to come out and see you. Yeah, because if you don't respond to fans, you know, and somebody else does. Yeah. Even if even if you're funnier. Yeah. They've got a They've got a connection. But but once again. Unique challenges come with every generation and the ways we overcome these challenges. It also opened up ways for the comic to be against the industry and still get famous. You know, take a look at Tyler, the creator, uh, independently signed artist, made it, uh, you know, pretty much in spite of everybody not wanting him to make it because he was really, really good. And myself in the Middle East, I boycotted all the media industry because it was so political and I actually took them head on and, uh, I wouldn't do any magazine interviews, nothing. But I was the highest selling artist in the Middle East. That's because of social networks and the internet and and replying to my fans. So I would, uh, it's it's a it's a you know everything's a double edged sword. I, it it did enable me in ways that are incredible. Yeah, and you also made the cover of Rolling Stone, correct for Middle East? Yeah. Well, that was a magazine that I would be more than happy to because it's not a political organization. But yeah, I made it to the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. It's funny because I was barely on anything and then Rolling Stone. So it was quite the uh, <laughs> quite the ascension. But yeah, I made the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, Middle East. Only Arab uh, artist to ever be on that magazine. Even in the Middle East, they used to copy uh, the American, uh, you know, covers. Yeah. And then uh, I was the only single Arab artist ever on it, you know, in the Middle East. So it was a big, big honor for me. And, you know... For anybody, I would imagine. That's great. Yeah. So, um, tell us a little bit of like, what is your act about? Um, well, uh, I got a comedy special coming out this Saturday uh, on Showtime, and I think if people watch it, they'll get a lot about what my act is about, and it's it's really it's about life, and and I don't want that to sound kind of like it's uh, mundane or everything. It's about the reality of the world we live in. Not what you believe is the reality. I, I do observational humor, but my observations are about really harsh realities. I'll be doing jokes about, you know, suicide bombing. I'll be doing jokes about family, about being cheated on. I'll be doing jokes about, you know, being mistaken for Muslim when you're Christian with the ramifications of it. I'll be doing jokes about, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, where do you live in this world that we're in today? Why would you choose this place over another place? And so there's a lot of, Meaning behind what I'm, I always try to make sure that my shows 
you can walk away from them actually having gained insight, perspective, and learned something about something, not just I, I made you laugh with silly jokes, but I made you tear up with hysterical jokes, and at the same time, I want you to to leave and see your world differently after you've experienced mine. So um, the show, for instance, coming out uh, this Saturday on Showtime, uh, shameless plug, 11 p.m. for everybody listening if you want to tune in and watch. Uh, and if you have friends and family in Canada, it's also going to be uh, in Canada on Crave TV. But um, basically, it's uh, I filmed it in Beirut and I filmed it in Los Angeles. And it's the same show. And I cut and jump in between the two because for me, it was important that I had this amazing comedy special. This material was incredible. But I wanted to and it was about perspective. It's called No Bombing in Beirut, but it's about perspective. I thought if I could film the same show and the joke starts in Los Angeles and then continues in Beirut and then drops in L.A. again and then the, it slams down back in Lebanon and I'm jumping back and forth and and you feel like it's the same show. So you're seeing two crowds laughing at the same jokes at the same guy with nothing else different, yeah. then that is the biggest example that we all have a lot more in common than we've been led to believe. I mean, for everybody who thinks the Middle East is just terrorists and Muslim extremists, when you see a Christian guy on stage telling jokes, everybody laughing, and it's in English, yeah. and he even tells jokes about Muslims, and Muslims are there, and they're laughing. For an American, you're going to be like, holy shit, this is a lot different than what I thought. And then if you're Lebanese and you see Americans laughing at the same jokes that they were laughing at, you're going to be like, these Americans are cool too. They don't... They're laughing at a Lebanese guy. They don't hate Arabs. Yeah. So you've you've solved huge problems. You made enormous strides in providing an argument or an example for people to be like um, the next time somebody says, you know, these Arabs are hopeless or it's just a terrible situation. They'll be like, well, I watched the comedy special and it, it was actually a lot different than what you're saying. And that's all you need. You need to put that argument there, freeze it in time and then move forward and forward. It's a it's a ladder. You got to start climbing it. Do you remember the first time you went on stage? Oh my goodness, yes, of course. How did that go? <clears throat> it went incredibly well, which was a problem. Uh, first time I stepped on stage, I used to do comedy at these concerts because um, you know there was no comedy club. So I would do these concerts, I would host, and I would do jokes in between the acts coming up in my university, the American University of Beirut. First time I get on stage, I'm supposed to be on there for maybe two minutes. And they have a technical problem. I end up staying there for 45 minutes. It was the crowd was about 300 people. And um, I got up and I was there for about 45 minutes and I crushed it. I was amazing. I was incredible. I mean, I, I was a, a rock star. Uh, bands would come up, people would be chanting my name. They want me to go back on. It was like revolutionary. So I went home that night and I was like, I am the greatest thing to ever happen to this world. <laughs> I'm an amazing, amazing talent. This is what I was meant to do. Nobody is like, you know, it went straight to my head and, and it was a three day concert the next day walk up on that same stage and bomb like I've never, I have never bombed that bad in my life, even to this day. Yeah. And it was just the big, and I couldn't understand what was happening. And I was only on stage for like four minutes, not even close to 45. And I was dying. And I couldn't understand why. I didn't know what was going. I got off stage and then the band came up and then I had to get back on and I bombed just as badly. And then I remember, um, taking a peek outside to look at the crowd underneath the lights that were blaring in my eyes. And I realized that it was an older crowd. It was parents. Uh, and I was doing material about the matrix and stuff. they had no idea what I was talking about. So I went up and slowly through that night, won the crowd back to neutral acceptance from absolute hatred. 
And uh, it taught me a huge lesson. I'll never forget it. Like that was the most humbling experience. And it also taught me that, you know, the crowd is always better than you. You're here to service the crowd. It's not the other way around. They're not here for you. You're here for them. So learn to understand the energy, read the crowd and, uh, and do material appropriate for them. So that, that was, that was a big, big, uh, very important experience for me as a, as an artist. Have a question for the Man Cave Chronicles? Tweet them now at the MCC Podcast. Rotoware.com. Rotoware. Big shout out to the Rotoware uh, company. It's so goddamn comfortable. Can't recommend them enough, man. Yeah. High quality t shirts. Shout out to Rotoware.com. You see me rocking the shirts on the videos and stuff like that. Where'd you get that? Rotoware. That is courtesy of Rotoware. It's just it's just the highest quality of shirts. Yeah, I really like the baseball designs you got here. The shirt is beautiful. Everybody who I've talked to who has the shirt basically says they can't believe how good the quality is. Yeah, kid, I've seen you've been getting a lot of love. You said you've been only running for a little over a month. CBS guys are tweeting out shirts. I'm seeing fantasy personalities everywhere digging this guy's shirt. I love the Run DFS shirt. It comes with the baseball cards with all the different shirts on it. Rotoware on Twitter. Check out rotoware.com. Oh my God. Is this, is this shirt making love to me right now? Like, what's going on? I love this shirt. This is Adam Nutter. And this is Greg Trout. And we're Nerds with Words. And you are listening to the BS Podcast Network. What, um,. Do you remember the first time when he performed in the U.S.? Yeah, I do. That was in uh, 2009. I came here for a few months. And uh, I got up at the comedy store. And I had a few friends of mine with me. And they told me, oh, you should do this set. You should do this set. You should do this set. So I did what they told me. And I, and I sucked terribly. And uh, <laughs> I sucked so bad. It was like I, I was never asked again. And then three days later, I was up at the improv and I did what I thought I should have done. And I did great. And I became regular at the improv then. And that was an amazing experience. Also, another lesson learned, you know, always trust your instincts. Because even if I had trusted my instincts, gone up at the comedy store and bombed, it would have been my fault. You know, you should you should listen to people. Always listen. But you need to make the decision at the end. And and it taught me a lesson in confidence and, and knowing who you are. And most importantly, knowing what your voice is. You know, so I remember that very vividly. Yeah. Do you um, do you perform at those clubs in uh, L.A. mostly on the weekends, or do you do more of mostly yeah. tours? Now, now I'm I do tour, I tour a lot, but um, whenever I'm in L.A., I'll I'll jump up at the Laugh Factory. That's that's where I, I like to go up the most. Um, it's it's become it's just a great club, and um, and the comedy store is obviously great, and so is the Improv, and I'll go up there as well, but. Laugh Factory's kind of become family, so I'm. I, that's where I work. You know, that's where I do the. Uh, they work out, as they say. You know, yeah. you go out, try your material, do all of that. It's just a really sophisticated crowd comes all the time. I love the Laugh Factory. Incredible comics, all the time. I learn a lot. You know, still to this day, I, I I know I tour and I go everywhere. But the beautiful thing about comedy is, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it, you're still not the best. You know, and, and then somebody could come up who's only been doing it for two years and they talk about something that you've been thinking about and they say something so brilliant and uh, and you realize you still have a long way to go because really comedy is about perspective and everybody's perspective is different based on what they've lived. So there's nobody who's going to be the greatest comic of all time. There's always going to be the greatest comic at this moment. And uh, that moment is just that it's a moment. It fleets. So it could it's fleeting. I mean, it, it could it, that moment will be replaced with somebody else's moment, and you're lucky if you're there to witness it. Yeah. Do you um do you have a, like a favorite place that you like to perform, or you said it was the Laugh Factory? 
Laugh, Laugh Factory. In terms of clubs, it's my favorite. It's the Laugh Factory. Um, in terms of like cities and really, I love every show. Anytime I'm on stage, yeah. It's not like if I'm not at the Laugh Factory, I'm unhappy. It's the it's I'm I'm happy to be on any stage anywhere. You know, it's just uh, um, you know, this is a privilege what we do, and I know tons of people who work so hard just to get a minute of stage time, and they can't get it, and we're all that person, you know, at some point in our career. So. I'm blessed, and anytime I can get up on a stage, really for me is just super exciting. No matter if there's one person in the crowd or ten thousand. Yeah. What um, have you opened for anybody that that you're all excited about? No, I haven't. Never, I've never opened for anyone. I've never had that experience because yeah. you know I I became a full fledged comic and and started touring and everything before I came here. So by the time I came here, it's like. You know, none of the none of the comics who are looking for somebody to tour with them or open with them would ask me. And although I would have loved to, I'm sure that I, I mean, if Dana Carvey had asked me to, I would have done it. You know, if anybody I, I'm still I, I, I like to see these other comics, but I, I understand that, you know, the business is the business. It doesn't make sense for my career to do it and it doesn't make sense for their career to do it. They should be offering the opportunity to somebody who needs it, Yeah. you know, who could really use it. So I haven't had the opportunity, but I've I've shared the stage with with a bunch of comics, even ones that I didn't know. You know that I I did a show at the Laugh Factory or the Improv or the Comedy Store, and I saw a comic there that I didn't know and and ended up becoming somebody I really enjoy watching uh, perform. You know, and and that that's what it is. Yeah. Um. So you have your Showtime special October seventh, right? Yeah. Just Saturday. Um, yep, this Saturday. Do you see any albums coming out for you anytime soon? I mean, first, what I see is this special. Uh, putting out an album wouldn't be difficult. I mean, just like we were talking about earlier, it'd be easier than a special. Yeah. But uh, I think in the in the bigger scheme of things, before I put out an album, I think I should put out another special, um, and then and then I'll I'll put out an album because I think more people would be interested in in uh, experiencing me in their lives on a on the back burner. When you when you have a comedy album, that's something you put on in the car. That's something you put on a you know. It's not an event. It's something you. That means you have to be familiar with me. I think that's a very intimate kind of setting. Somebody to put headphones on and listen to me, yeah. uh, or to sit down and have it in the backdrop. And uh, I think I still need to become more of a household name here in America. Yeah. Before, before I would do that, you know. Um, but I, but I would I will release one probably in a couple years. I, I still have I already have a brand new show that's ready to be filmed and put out as a special. So I'm I'm hoping to do that within a year from the release of this one. Yeah. And then uh, maybe uh, seven or eight months later, I'll put out a comedy album as well. It's just I always want to make the sure the material's spot on. And of course, you know, this new show and and the show that I mean the show coming out this Saturday and and the the other show that I'm touring with right now, both of them have visual elements to them. So I think also when I get that show that's so good for audio and 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 is really you know you know it you're like this material would shine really if it was listened to more than it was seen yeah. that I'll release it as an album as well. Yeah. All right, and uh, I wrote out a few things that are trending today. You ready to answer a couple? Yeah, of let's questions? let's All jump right. into it. Yeah. All right. So, uh, well, this one's been going on for almost a week now. What do you think about the NFL players that are kneeling down? <sighs> I don't see what I mean. America needs. <laughs> Sometimes I'll take a look at these things and I'll be like, you know, America um, is too privileged there. I mean, there haven't been wars here. There haven't been anything. The issues that take this nation by storm are absolutely ridiculous to to me to think that people would lose their minds over somebody standing or kneeling to the flag. um, And it's not to the flag. Sorry. During the national anthem. Yeah. 
it's ridiculous that you could be manipulated that much to think that these players are out there <laughs> trying to disrespect you personally and your flag. And it's like, listen to what they're saying, you know, listen to why they're doing it. Take their word for it. I mean, these are your brothers and sisters. These are American people. Plus, even if you're on the argument that what they're doing is wrong, and let's say you believe it, this is your family. They're allowed to make mistakes. How many times has your brother or sister at home done something really terrible? What do your parents say? They're not they're not your family? Yeah. They tell you that, you know, you're the older brother, you're the older sibling, you you the older sister, you you need to just teach them better. So if you think what they're doing is wrong and you are God and you are absolutely correct, then patiently tell them. But don't call them un-American. Don't treat them like second-rate people. And don't berate them. If they choose to express themselves that way and they're doing it wrong, then express yourselves correctly and tell them how you want it differently. This is America. You guys are having an argument. We're having an argument over who's more patriotic. It's ridiculous. And You know, it's it's a little funny when, you know, there's football fans out there like, oh, I'm done watching football. And I'm like, do you think no, you're the, not. No. Do you think the players care if you stop watching football? Of course not. They're getting paid regardless. Yeah. They're making millions and, then, and millions of dollars. And it, American. I mean, we're so um, we're so up ourselves. We're so egotistical that we believe we have so much value as individual consumers. We don't. Uh, we have value as a group of consumers. Don't waste your power as a group of consumers over something this ridiculous. And America is becoming a constant state of outrage. We get outraged over so many different things now that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Save the outrage for when there needs to be outrage because you're you're devaluing your currency. The outrage currency has become worthless and stupid. And uh, second thing I wrote down was uh, Hugh Hefner. Ah, rest in peace. Yeah. Rest in peace. There is nobody in this world that's a man that's gonna that isn't gonna be like that's my man. You know, I mean, that's Hugh Hefner did a lot for, uh, you know, I, I mean, do we even need to say? I mean, it's Hugh Hefner, the Playboy Mansion, everything that he's done, yeah. um, is has been groundbreaking as in terms of he created an industry. I was talking to somebody earlier today, and and we were mentioning how he created something that didn't ex- he didn't like mold a genre out of something. He created the Playboy Mansion. There had never been anything like it. The Playboy Magazine, never been anything like it. I mean, the things he did were really pioneering. And from a business standpoint, it's incredible. And from just that young boy standpoint, it's really awesome. And many women as well think the same too. So uh, he definitely lived a a full and uh, an adventurous life. One hell of an adventure. Yeah. And he also, how many careers did he create for actors? My goodness. My goodness. This My one. goodness, so many, yeah. so many, like it's uh, incredible careers. Yeah. Um. So no, he was he was awesome in every way, and at the same time, I mean, he's uh, everybody in the world knows Hugh Hefner. Yeah. How many people can say that? Everybody, you know, or Playboy at least, and that that's that that brand value. I mean, only Pepsi and Coca Cola have that. You know, McDonald's, and then, and then that's that's something else. Imagine living his life for one day. Incredible. I mean, if that's what you're into. Yeah. Personally, I, I never felt the desire to to be in that. My, my life priorities are different. Yeah. But one thing I can tell you is that if I had his life for a day, it definitely wouldn't suck. Yeah. It would actually be one hell of a life. I mean, living his life for a day, for a year, for anything 
would be amazing because what he did, I wouldn't say living his life like saying he living in the Playboy Mansion. For me, it would be living like Hugh Hefner means living like a man who refused to listen to other people and did what he wanted to do and did whatever it took to do what he wanted to do. But he did it his way and he did it ethically. And, you know, if you could live like that for a day or a lifetime, you're going to live a good life. Yeah. You're going to live a very good life. Finally, I wrote down. Uh, was actually, this was a headline, which I made me chuckle. Can Justin Timberlake escape the shadow of Nipplegate? Because 14 years ago, we had that nipple, <laughs> we had that nipple slip, and uh, they might be Janet asking, Jackson. Yeah, they might be asking him to come back to perform this year. Oh, of course he can. Of course he. Can. This is America. If the president exactly. can say, "Grab him by the pussy." Yeah. There's no, there's no, and I'm, and by the way, for anybody who supports Trump or anything, I'm not, I'm not attacking anyone. I, I don't like to get political. I'm saying America can really look over everything and anything. Uh, what America cares about is where you're going and what you want to do, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what Donald Trump showed us that America cares about. Nobody cared about what he did. They cared about what he wants to do, you know, and what he's going out. People who voted for him like that and people who voted against him, same thing. Uh, America is a very forgiving country, uh, as long as you put on a really good show. So if he puts on a great show, nobody's going to give a shit. Yeah. No, no, no. But if he puts on a terrible show, then they're going to come out and say the show is terrible. And didn't he do the nipple? And you know, that's when it, (laughs) that's when it comes back. But, uh, as long as you put on a great show, America let you do anything. Exactly. All right. Is there uh, anything else you want to tell listeners before we end this? Uh, just, uh, I hope you guys enjoy the special this Saturday, 11 PM on Showtime. And, um, it's going to be on demand afterwards. So be sure to check it out anytime. My name's Nimmer. That's N E M R. And you can catch me online at Nimmer comedy. So it's N E M R comedy on all the social networks, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, or just go to my website, nimmercomedy.com. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. And, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll come back on again. Are you kidding me? Of course. Thanks so much. And hopefully uh, I'll be in the East Coast someday and, uh, you know, uh, you can come out to a show. I'll be, I'm coming to New York soon. So I got a bunch of tour dates. If you go to my website, you'll see them all up there. So uh, I hope to see you guys at a show and I'll be sure to invite you to, to anyone that um, that, you're, that you can make me. Like burning warm.